about this, but in the last episode, I mentioned that the date of first contact between humans and Vulcans was April 4th, 2063. As it turns out, it was off by one day. It's April 5th. Oh my god, Kat! I I mean, you should be ashamed of yourself. I can't. I I humbly submit my resignation. (laughs) (laughs) Accepted. Welcome to Like a Fish Needs a Starship, uh, your friendly but bitter feminist podcast about science fiction. This is uh, Steph and Kat, your hosts. Hello. So, Kat, how's life? You know, it is uh, contained within the four walls of my home. Pretty, pretty good. How about you? Same. I have to say that I have dreamed about being confined to my home for like days and days at a time. (laughs) And it's one of those things like where you almost feel bad that you had hoped for that because I'm very suited to this lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) But I wouldn't want it at the expense of what is currently happening to our society. So Yeah, it's like at first introverts around the world were celebrating, but it, it it wears on everybody. But you know, I've I've tried to utilize this time to Maybe do projects I normally wouldn't have had time to get around to, although more time than I'd like to admit has been spent just like splayed out on my sofa watching Netflix, which I guess brings us to a burning topic of conversation. (laughs) Hey, staff, (laughs) what did you think of Tiger King? I've had my days of coke. I had my days of drinking. I had my days of meth. Oh, Kat, um, (laughs) I have a lot of opinions about this. I'm going to apologize in advance for the tirade that I'm about to go on. No, this is a podcast about bitter feminist (laughs) rants, and I know that's what you have planned, so. I am very bitter about this show for a lot of reasons. First, I'm, I'm actually frustrated with women that I know because let's just be honest about it. The world has been talking about two things. One is the coronavirus and the other is Tiger King. And I, like everyone else, have participated in the, you know, purient interest of seeing this bananas, absurd world of, I don't even know what you would call it, you know, and sharing in the memes and laughing and stuff. But I have become very disturbed by the way that Obviously, it's not everyone in the world, but it's a very large segment of the internet and their reaction to Carol Baskin. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's Carol at Big Cat Rescue. And it's not just men, it's women, a lot of women. And like I said, my friends, like I have a group of friends, we have a group chat, and I'm literally the only person in the entire group that not not just like I don't hate Carol Baskin because I don't see a reason to hate her, but also the only person in the group chat that even recognizes the feminist problem of the fact that people hate Carol Baskin so much. Like they're not even willing to entertain the idea that there 
reaction to her, which they do hate her, that their reaction to her is a result of social programming as opposed to a result of something that Carol Baskin actually did. Yeah. Which, and and do you mind if I jump in for a second? I no, just no, wanted to, to comment. You know, I, I could understand people disliking her in the context of, you know, she doesn't really take great care of her animals either, because there certainly are shots where she's got large animals in small cages. And I think, you know, I don't know enough about the animal rescue aspect of it, because clearly that was not the focus of the show. I yeah, hesitate right. to even call it a documentary, but I can understand if people were like, well, you know, she portrays herself as like this big rescuer of cats. And in reality, she's exploiting them just as much as everybody else. And therefore I dislike her. Fine. Valid. But you're right. It it seems to have become this internet hobby to hate on her I don't know if it's, I mean, obviously a large part of it is internalized misogyny. Perhaps she's just not as entertaining as Joe. But here was this woman who's like been taken advantage of by older men for most of her life. And when she gets taken advantage of in a different way by another man who's trying to ruin her business and she's like, I'm going to sue the fuck out of you. And she wins. How much of that do you think is driving the hatred of her? Well, so I have a lot of thoughts on this. If anyone has ever made an argument that there is no internalized misogyny in our culture, Carol Baskin is the most clear example I have ever seen that it is present, live, and kicking. Because Mm -hmm. on so many layers, like first, what you're saying about like, well, she's keeping big cats in small cages, so she's taking advantage of them too. I don't know that that's actually a fair representation of what she's doing. Mm -hmm. I do think that the filmmakers, and they're to blame as well, because the lens that they placed on this was basically like, oh, look at this Joe guy. He's so whimsical. And like, oh, it's so funny that he has like these men that aren't gay, but they are. But If you look up her nonprofit online, she actually runs a well-reputed, legitimate, and the key word here is non-profit, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, Mm -hmm. she is keeping big cats in cages in her sanctuary, but what makes it a sanctuary is that she's not parading these animals for people to see for profit. She's not breeding them for profit. And the reality is these animals cannot go into the wild because they were bred in captivity by people like the other two men that the show is about. And so what do you do with animals that you can't set free because of the circumstances that they were born in? You know, Mm -hmm. so like, and again, because she's running a non-profit She's limited. Her resources are limited as to what she can do here. (laughs) There's just so much. Okay. So first I want to talk about Carol as a criminal. And again, this is, I'm talking about this through a, the lens of a very frustrating text conversation that I had with some close friends where I was just like, tell me why you hate her so much. Like why, why? And they could not give me, any reasons that made any logical sense you know so one of the reasons that well she killed her husband so Kat you and I have both during the course of our careers practiced criminal law correct and you would agree with me that there is no substantial evidence that she killed her husband is there the only the only item that tends in any way shape or form 
to implicate her in having to do with her husband's disappearance, not necessarily his murder, but his disappearance is the power of attorney. Again, this is assuming that the way things were presented in the show is the way that they actually are. And I have a bone to pick with Netflix over another documentary episode that totally, it's not Tiger King related and it's not a subject for today, but it totally skewers reality to, to try to make a point. The power of attorney was apparently prepared by her. And most powers of attorney do include a line that says, you know, this this durable power of attorney shall not be affected by my incapacity because powers of attorney expire at the time the principal passes away. They don't survive death. This particular power of attorney had a very unusual line, which is this durable power of attorney shall not be affected by my incapacity or my disappearance, which is not a thing. That goes into powers of attorney. So there is that. And it did raise my eyebrow. Would I bring charges against her based solely on that piece of evidence alone? Of course not. I mean, it's only weird if we're accepting that he didn't draft it knowing that he would disappear. And that's, again, that goes right. back to, did the documentary present it? You know, for all we know, we they sat at a table and they typed it up together. You know, like, we don't Correct. Know. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing. It's like none of the things that are presented as evidence that she actually killed him are actually evidence that she killed them. It's circumstantial evidence, which lends itself to multiple different types of interpretation. You know, so (laughs) not not like not like when there's a hole in the blood vial. Correct. So that means so okay (laughs) all right and so this is what makes me so angry because i am not like did she kill her husband i don't know she may have but the fact is that there isn't even probable cause that she killed her husband at all i don't even think there's reasonable suspicion there's not even reasonable suspicion which is why so so in order for us to conclude that she killed her husband we'd have to also assume that the the police are completely inept because guess what when they saw the the three little pieces of evidence that everybody else saw i.e he disappeared she threatened him and there's this weird uh power of attorney that effectively gave her control over his entire estate the police were aware of those things too, right? Yeah, but I mean, the police, the lead detective did have what appeared to be a wooden monkey butler statue in his home. So I don't know that I am on board with all his decision making choices there, Stephanie. You didn't, you don't think it occurred to him that because she runs a giant tiger sanctuary, that if she were going to kill somebody, she would perhaps feed said body to a tiger in her sanctuary? Oh, I'm sure it occurred to them. Did they have any probable cause to obtain a search warrant? No. (laughs) (laughs) And therein lies the rub. Right. There's not any evidence that she did anything wrong. You know, if there were, we wouldn't be here discussing it. The point is, I'm getting too far off base because it's not my intention to defend her. There's just a lack of evidence. And then we have to compare that with other true crime phenoms in our society like serial and making a murderer and again making a murderer is from netflix and again i think that that show really misrepresents a lot of things about the criminal justice system but let's set that aside so on both those shows both those men who are by the way accused of killing women are depicted as these victims of the system right Mm -hmm. 
which, by the way, both of them were convicted, found guilty, meaning that a jury of their peers found that there was sufficient evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed the crimes that they're accused of committing. Right. Right. And so many people, particularly like Internet people, were losing their minds that Adnan Syed was wrongly convicted, that he was innocent, that, you know, whatever. And that Stephen Avery was framed by law enforcement, right? And in both those cases, is there weird stuff? Yeah, in every single criminal case, there's weird stuff. Because guess what? Those are the cases that go to trial. If you don't have weird stuff going on, witnesses that contradict each other, evidence that could be, you know, support one theory or another, those cases don't go to trial. Those cases plea out. So yes, there's always going to be two sides of every trial, because otherwise the case wouldn't be going to trial, right? (laughs) So in both those cases where a jury of peers that sat down and listened to all of the evidence beginning to end and found this person guilty, we're going to give those guys the benefit of a doubt that maybe they aren't guilty, despite the fact that there is significant evidence establishing their guilt. And we're going to determine that this woman who is accused of killing her husband, and there's really only three circumstantial pieces of evidence. I mean, if you even want to call it evidence. Mm -hmm suggesting that she may have been involved in killing him. There isn't even evidence that he's actually dead. Right. But she's guilty. She did this. She got away with this. And we're all going to be super mad about it. And I have to wonder why. And it doesn't escape me that there's a difference in the crimes that they're accused of committing, Mm -hmm. that there's a gender difference. You know, both Avery and Adnan are accused of killing women. And here's Carol Baskin, who's accused of killing her husband. And in a patriarchal society, There is no worse crime than that, second only to a woman who kills her baby or kills her own child. I can't imagine that there is any other reason why people would be so willing to conclude based on so little evidence that this woman did this terrible thing. And yet (laughs) in other situations where there is actually real evidence, be like, no, you know, the criminal justice system is broken. Well, I think a lot of it is internalized misogyny. A lot of it is a mob mentality. You know, people I don't think are putting a whole lot of thought. I mean, I'm talking more about like Internet people, not the people that you were having conversations with. People share memes. It's funny. They're not, I don't really think, putting a lot of thought into it, which obviously is, is part of the problem. So anyway... I guess we should probably start on our Everyone Hates Jean-Luc Picard apology tour. Yes, and uh, it it, it does not get any better. Season (laughs) one, episode four, Absolute Candor. This show is uh, setting up a little bit of a pattern of beginning with a flashback. This flashback is to planet Vashti 14 years ago, which is home to a Romulan relocation hub. And we go outside and we see it's got that like vaguely medieval green market feel to it that we have seen in so many other television shows and movies. You know, you've got people breaking bread outside. You've got the blacksmith. They're all in like this open air market. And as a matter of fact, I don't know why. I do know why. It was because I had an incredibly strong old fashioned last night and started making poor decisions. I decided that I would watch Star Trek Insurrection, which is a a next generation movie. 
the worst of all the Next Generation movies, although it does feature the romantic reunification of Riker and Troy, whom I ship a lot. And it's the same freaking open air market, like when you start seeing whatever planet that they're on. You know, it's the very Star Trekian thing, but you've seen it in Game of Thrones, you saw it in that HBO show Rome, so whatever. You got kids randomly running down the street, bothering the vendors, a little Romulan brat steals an onion, I think it is, and runs away. Anyway, Picard beams down wearing the clothing of the colonizers. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> I want to talk to you about this scene. Okay, so setting aside the fact that we've seen this in series that depict ancient slash medieval cultures like Mm. Rome and Game of Thrones, and that we've seen other planets in science fiction that have these types of societies. In TNG, is there any depiction of Romulan culture that would be consistent with what they're portraying? No, there's 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 very little. And that's kind of like the whole deal is the Romulans are very secretive, which is a thread that continues to run through Star Trek Picard. And the Federation doesn't really know a lot about them. And as a matter of fact, because the poor decisions continued last night after I watched Insurrection, I watched Nemesis. And... And there was this whole thing, which Nemesis involves an overthrow in the Romulan government. And you do see a little bit about their uh, inside their Senate. It kind of looks like a, Ro- uh, like a Roman type of a Senate. And there's this whole like commentary about, you know, well, we don't really know what's going on in the Romulan Empire. We have this kind of vague and spotty intel that the society, the government was overthrown. So we don't really know a lot. Probably the most that we know comes from the TNG episode, uh, Face of the Enemy. That's the one that we talked about before, where they kidnap Troy and turn her into a Romulan because they need her empathic abilities. And all we really find out in that particular episode is, is about the Talshiar. So to to answer your question, we really don't know much about Romulan society. We do know that the costume designer of this show didn't really think about the implications of dressing Picard like a British viceroy traveling to India in the late 1800s. Right. Um, (laughs) So when I saw this scene, I was like... Jesus. Because you look at it, and it, that's exactly what it looks like. It's like vaguely Middle Eastern, vaguely Indian. And I, you see all the Romulans are, not all of them, but a, a pretty significant portion of them are black and brown, right? And they're in the sandy, dirty, open-air market that, it, to me, it's not very green market-like at all, because I think of green markets, and I think of, like, crunchy granola Carol Baskin types. you know this is to me it's being used as shorthand for other you know presuming Mm -hmm. that the average viewer is going to identify with picard and the federation you know the the costuming is very middle eastern like drapey fabrics you know very i mean i don't know how else to describe it you know Mm -hmm. so to me it's like are they just being lazy because they know that in a society like ours this will be perceived as a shorthand for like, these people are not like me, especially because 
Picard is then presented like a white savior. Like to, <laughs> to the extent that, I mean, we'll get to it at the end of this episode, but like that's essentially what's happening here. Right. So it just smacks of low key racism to me. Well, I, I have a little more to say about the low key racism and the way this show utilizes its, I don't want to say extras, but its background characters of color. And I'll, I'll kind of get to that at the end. To me, the costuming on this planet, I felt like what the costume designers were trying to convey was that it's hot. It's just a hot place. And that's why people are dressed the way that they're dressed. But, you know, this is the 24th century. Surely there is a way that Picard could have been dressed. (laughs) Yes, you know. I mean, you can wear linen without looking like you're about to go on African safari and then come back and have your slave serve you tea or whatever it is. So last episode, we had talked about the Tom and Lorenzo article that was going to come out about the costume design. And they I read it and they went in a totally different direction than I thought they were going to go in. I thought they were going to talk about like why Agnes Girardi was in these colors. And and that's very much what they did when they analyzed Mad Men. And what they said was, you know, they picked up on the fact that the costuming is like very natural. It's a lot of stuff that we'd wear. It looks very modern to us. They said, you know, you have a lot of tweeds, you have a lot of linens, you have a lot of cotton, you have a lot of natural fibers as juxtaposed with how everybody looked in TNG where it was lots of like garish colors and polyester and synthetic. And what they said was, you know, what is the show hitting us over the head with? This is a show that's hitting us over the head with the fact that for 14 years, the Federation has lived with a debilitating fear of synthetic life. And so how that's reflected in the fashion is that there's been this return to very natural, very organic fibers. And I was like, I mean, obviously, like I'm such a fucking moron for not picking up on that myself. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that's why it's so important to have these types of discussions because, (laughs) yeah, that totally makes sense to me. The whole thing stood out to me in particular because I think we've talked about this before. Like, why are Narek and his creepy sister, like, vaguely British, you know? And so here we have, like, the tall Shi'ar, which we're going to presume that Romulan culture is anything like our culture, you know, like law enforcement, military, intelligence. They're, Mm -hmm. They're, like close to the upper echelon of our society. They're like the elites, you know, mm-hmm. so the the elite Romulans that we see are white and British <laughs> for no reason, right? And then the Romulan refugees that had to be recolonized, I mean, let's call it what it is, like they're uh-huh. creating, creating colonies, right? They're black and brown. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting perspective and I, and I have more to say about it when we get to a certain scene and it's going to surprise you because it's not in my notes. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention one more thing about Planet Vashti, which is we get a shot of a small building bearing a sign that looks like it's written in what I assume to be Romulan and English. And it says North Station Romulan Social Club, which was just hilarious to me. I mean, like literally I cackled when I saw this first because I I don't know if you've ever been to the Food and Wine Festival at Epcot but this place looked exactly like the booths that they set up to represent like the various countries of the world and you go and you get like your selection of four or five different foods it looked exactly like that and I just thought it was hilarious I don't know why second I very badly want to know what they're doing at the Romulan Social Club (laughs) are 
Are they playing that little tarot card game that Rhonda plays? Like Romulan Bingo, Romulan Dominoes. I need to know, and I I will never. They are playing the little triangle game because I I saw that. And they're playing like a game that looks oddly like Parks and Rec where the main character's husband was creating his own board game. No, I, I really never watched Parks and Rec. <laughs> well, do you, have you ever played Settlers of Catan? No, but I'm, I'm aware of it. Okay, well, they're playing a game that's vaguely Settlers of Catan-ish with like okay. little wooden pieces on the board and then the, the triangle cards. Hmm. So yeah, I was, I was very interested in that. I would have liked more information about their Romulan board games because as you know, I love board games. Picard is headed to what appears to be a spa in a treehouse. It's got lots of candles, breezy curtains, wind chimes, Romulan nuns. I would get a mud bath here. And the little brat is there, the onion-stealing brat. This is Elnor, and he wants to know what Picard has bought him. The answer is a copy of The Three Musketeers in English, which seems impractical. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Hey, what present would you take to a child whose family presumably died at some point and who's been relocated to another planet that they've never been on before and they are basically living with a bunch of adult strangers that... Why, clearly, I would bring them classic (laughs) literature from the oppressor culture to hasten the child's assimilation. That, at that point, is like a thousand years old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seems reasonable, Picard. Yeah. One of the nuns uh, tells Elnor to quit bothering Picard because he hates children, and Picard is like, no, I love kids. Kids are great, which... You know, Picard never did become 100% comfortable with children on TNG. He got more comfortable with them. I don't think he ever got to the point where you could, with any semblance of a straight face, say that he loved children. But I would say his response here seems to be something less than absolute candor, which is these nuns deal. So as we've been learning, the Romulets are all about their secrets. But these nuns, who are called the Coatmalat, disdain secrets and instead strive to tell the truth at all time, which I do not care for because in my mind, they reminded me of a bunch of mean girls who would like call you fat to your face and then be like, sorry, I'm just being honest. I'm sorry that people are so jealous of me, but I can't help it that I'm popular. So already this episode was like an hour long flashback to my middle school years. So I was already predisposed to hate it. So we're back on the La Serena, and Dr. Gerardi is annoying Rios by talking about how boring space is. What do we notice about Dr. Gerardi in this scene? She's in blue. She's No, she's not. She's not? Blue. She's wearing, like, black and dark gray. Oh, I did not notice that. So this is really, like, her first turn in space and she's starting to develop some unease all right so your space is boring i don't really like it out here she asked him what his book is about because as we all know when you're in the middle of reading a book you definitely want to have to stop to explain the plot to like a rando and it's the book that we talked about or that you gave us the uh, explanation about in the last episode yeah i'm blanking on what that is because <laughs> I feel like it was so long ago to record it. I think the author was Miguel de Unamuno and the name of the book was 
gosh uh I just I made fun of my dog on Instagram the other day using the title of the book I cannot remember (laughs) do you remember (laughs) I don't know okay Um, it was uh well hold on let me look it up (laughs) the tragic sense of life (laughs) ah, there we go okay that's the one that we talked about the last episode living with the pain of the consciousness of death they're headed back to Vashti they're making a pit stop on the way to Free Cloud because this ragtag bunch needs one more member to round out its general overall motliness. Picard, for totally personal and not at all budgetary reasons, has recreated Wineacre in the Lacerate <laughs> holodeck with the assistance of the emergency hospitality hologram, which I guess exists like if the ship needs to take on passengers and the crew can't be bothered to give them the time of day. Like, I don't know. I thought that's what like the general main computer would be for, but whatever. Because otherwise it seems like kind of a frivolous addition to the emergency hologram box set that the ship came up with. Right. But this is a feature that doesn't put lawyers on starships. So what do I know? And um, this hologram kind of sounds like Christoph Waltz. Like, the cadence was very lambda. I'm not even going to hate on them for the... No, I love that. No, no, no. I'm saying, like, the hologram thing where, you know, there's 9,000 uh, Rio's holograms. Like, whatever. Just put them more on screen. I'm into it. I, I, wanted to, <laughs> I, I wanted there to be, like, an emergency hologram for every occasion. But anyway, they're talking about how the sector that Vashti in is kind of like the Wild West. It's run by warlords and petty criminals, which really will only serve as the setup for the last few minutes of this episode. So we can forget about it for like 38 minutes. We learn that basically after the Romulan rescue was halted and the Federation left all these Romulans on this planet, they deteriorated into violence and strife. Which I can't really decide if I view that as a commentary on the damage that savior cultures can do when they just like come in and then leave. Or if I viewed that as a racist commentary on the Romulans ability or inability, as it were, to rebuild their own society. But I think I'm going to go with the former because it kind of reminds me of the United States going into Iraq. And basically just making a mess of the place and then being like, peace out. I mean, it's both. It's both. Again, this is like very non-nuanced shorthand for our society's representation of what happened in that area of the world. You know, which I'm sure there are perspectives that we're not considering because that's how presumed victors write the... But yeah, I mean, obviously that's what they're doing. And I just, I think it's suspect. (laughs) <laughs> but I think everything is suspect, so. But I think I think it's more evidence of, like, blind spots than it is, like, deliberate racism. But, I mean, blind spots can be just as dangerous, so. Internalized racism. Yeah, is, like, yeah. Internalized sexism is you don't even know that you're being biased. The behavior is so second nature that you don't even see it as biased or prejudiced. So. Right, right. We learn that the Kawat Malat are warrior nuns, which I really wanted to know more about. And yeah, I got some shit to say about this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, they're, <laughs> and they're the most feared enemies of the Tal Shiar, which I also want to know more about because the Tal Shiar, I mean, the Tal Shiar 
are, I guess, like the Romulan equivalent of Section 31, except that they have more of a presence and they are officially acknowledged, whereas Section 31 is not really officially acknowledged. The Tal Shiar kind of are somewhere on the hierarchy of the Romulan government and the military. So I was like, all right, so where does the Kuat Malat come into play? Are there like a state recognized religion? Are they some kind of arm of government? Like how, how are they as a group, as an organization integrated into Romulan culture? I would have loved to get more about that. But of course, Picard isn't really here to see them. He's going to see Elnor because he couldn't help Dodge. You know, might not be able to help Soji. So he's going to compound his guilt by going to visit yet another child that he could not help. Because as we've been expounding upon this theme for the past four episodes, Picard, when he can't help somebody in his perfect Picard way, just kind of scurries away, leaving everybody to pick up their own pieces of their own destroyed lives. So for better or for worse. We're back on the artifact. Soji is in her quarters and she's watching like a YouTube video of a much less disordered Ramda. And Ramda is giving a lecture on Ganmadan or the Day of Annihilation, which is this day in Romulan mythology where all life is destroyed everywhere when the beasts break their shackles and answer the call of Seb Chideb, the destroyer. Soji is dismayed again, as we have discussed before i'm into the idea of being a destroyer same yeah <laughs> i forgot that i was gonna <laughs> append that to my name in the intro. oh that's okay picard beams down to vashti and unlike the last time he was there nobody gives two shits about him the last time that he beamed down there all of the little children and a bunch of people were running up to him they're like oh it's white savior thank you and this time he's either getting ignored or stared down wherever he goes he makes his way to the treehouse. Zani, the head nun, is there. She really hasn't aged. The Vulcans, uh, Vulcans and Romulans are related. They have a common ancestor. Vulcans age very slowly. They have a much longer lifespan than humans. I was wondering if maybe Romulans were the same. We don't get any explanation. That's okay. I can't get everything no, I want. Cat, I have some. I have some stuff to say about this. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Not about the aging. So when John Luke you know, pulls up on this treehouse, this spa treehouse. Zani is cooking. And I just, <laughs> I just, so here we have a fucking badass warrior nun, right? And the depiction that the writers choose to use to essentially I mean, she's already been introduced to us earlier in the episode, but in all of that discussion, we're just told that she's a badass warrior nun. Right. You know, otherwise there's there's no other information about them, right? right? And so the first time that we get a chance to see what their life is like, right, we get this scene of domesticity. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem with women cooking in and of itself. People have to eat. Both right. men and women cook. Like, that's fine. I have a problem with that being what they chose to be the thing that she is doing when Jean-Luc Picard walks in. Yeah, like, why wouldn't you get a scene of them, like, training their younger members or something oh, like that? Right. So, yes. like, so that's the thing. It's like, well, so ask yourself, 
why is this what we're being shown that warrior nuns do? Is this what we would be shown if these were if this was a scene involving warrior monks? Because again, you know, just like you were saying about the the open air market scene, we've mm-hmm. seen that over and over and over. It's a pattern right. that we get in these TV shows where this is you know this is what it looks like you know right. the you know the quarters where people get together. We've seen this scene of a person coming up on a warrior camp or whatever a million times, especially in shows like Game of Thrones. And what you see is a bunch of men sparring. Right. And here we are with these badass warrior nuns and no one's sparring. What we see is like, she's fucking baking bread, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, maybe the planet's been ravaged by COVID-19 and they're under a stay at home order. And, you know, she has finally got around to baking that bread she wanted to make this whole time. I'm just offended. I, I'm I know. I was I'm more yeah. offended today. I think starting with the Tiger King. Now I'm just like I have nothing <laughs> to anything about this episode that isn't a comment on sexism or racism. So that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> what we do here at Like a Fish. My liberal rage is especially snowflake today. It's burning, it's burning bright today. Back to the artifact. Soji and Narek. Make googly eyes at each other over Ramda's unconscious body because, you know, sure. And they go to the artifacts bar, which I, I mean, obviously, this would like not be appropriate for a scene in this TV show because it does nothing to advance the plot. But I'm like, oh my God, like, I wonder how the decision was made to put a bar in a bar cube. Like, I just. <laughs> and Soji tells Narek. She's a trusting person by nature. Why? Why would Bruce Maddox program an android that he was going to send out into the wild on a secret mission? Why would he program her to be trusting of everybody? Fuck. At least finally in this scene, somebody is like a little bit self-aware about how ridiculous this is because then she's like, I don't know, I'm trusting by nature, but like you're challenging my paradigm. And he's like, ooh, let me see how I can fix that. I'm going to say more creepy, weird things that would suggest that you should not trust me. (laughs) Yeah, he he challenges her paradigm by taking her to a Borg hallway where they can slide around in their socks like Tom Cruise and Risky Business. And I guess this is like, this is what does it for her. I, I'm, a, I'm at the age where I would worry about like my sciatica if I did. <laughs> so I could not get into the scene. Cat, what the fuck is worse than having Narek just be in any scene? Ugh. Having Narek and Elix in a scene? <laughs> Having Narek in his fucking socks, sliding around on a floor, wooing. That's the worst thing that could be in any scene. And I bet he has gross sock feet, too. I bet they smell like corn. (laughs) Corn? Like, corn chips. Like, you've never, (laughs) like, thought that stinky feet smelled like Fritos? I don't. No. <laughs> I, mean, I have a five-year-old who's always putting her stinky sock feet in my face, so I've had a lot to think about this. Okay. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I don't find the scent of Fritos to be particularly offensive. Uh, maybe that says something about me. <laughs> I, like, I like Fritos, but I don't know, like stinky Fritos. I don't know. I, I Now I know the next topic of conversation from my next therapy session, so... 
do I smell corn when I smell stinky feet? <laughs> how, how have Fritos wronged me in my life? You know, I guess if this were a couple that we liked, this scene would be cute. But Narek oh, is awful. Midnight, no matter what. Like, He's oh, like, this is how women fall in love. It's when men do whimsical things. Like, get the fuck out of here. Well, you know, at least to the writer's small, small credit, at least it was the man doing the whimsical thing and not, you know, a manic pixie dream girl throwing, like, a picnic on a cloud or some shit like that. Okay, yeah, you're right. I mean, it would. I'm just as annoyed when a manic pixie dream girl does a whimsical thing to... I just, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, yeah, I okay. But th- so, thank you for thank you for tempering my like hatred with yes, it's reasonable cutbacks. You're you're <laughs> ab- you're absolutely right. Although it is also very stereotypical for to have a man be whimsical and to have that be the woman the reason the woman falls madly in love. Um, it is just as stereotypical to have a manic pixie dream girl be manic and pixie like so i think this is probably the first time in the history of star trek canon that anyone's ever described a romulan as whimsical <laughs> well he's not this is like <laughs> it's to be whimsical it's like let's slide around in my socks but i'm gonna pretend like it's a really serious ritual but it's not we're just gonna laugh and i just i don't know there's something wrong with me i've been in my house for too long <laughs> so, so anyway, they finish sliding around in their socks and they kiss. Bleh. And Narek is like, hey, so that ship that we were just talking about that you came here on, uh, I pulled the passenger manifest for totally non-creepy reasons. And he does with the and, person you're, you know, yeah, hooking up with. And you weren't on it. So this offends her, as it should, and she storms off. And then Narek's like, hey, I'm going to show you some secret board files. And she stops right back. Anyway, Um, back at the treehouse spa, Zani calls Picard out on his shit. It's what I've been saying. You couldn't save everyone, so you chose to save no one. He just retreated. And he's like, yeah, kind of. And Picard is there, obviously, because he wants something, not because he's, like, feeling any kind of regular guilt over how he's acted. He wants a Coatmulot warrior. And Zani suggests that he takes Elnor, who is, like, a bit of an honorary Coatmulot. They don't let men in formally, but I guess they trained him in combat because he had nowhere else to go. Certainly said, couldn't send him to live with those uh, black and brown Romulans. This is this is our feminist throwaway. Like, oh, we should, like, how progressive, how challenging to, to establish this foil to regular society where it's, like, typically women can't be warriors. Like, yeah. oh, look, a man can't be a warrior. Isn't that ridiculous? I, I'm not even can't. making sense anymore. <laughs> he can't be a warrior, but we've trained him in the ways of the warrior. It does not, it does not make sense. So you can't hire a Quatmalot. You can only plead your case to them. And if it meets their criteria, they'll bind their sword to you. Picard makes his pitch to Elnor, who is pretty clearly still pissed at him for being abandoned 14 years ago. So he's basically done to Elnor the same thing he did to Rafi, like never thought to check up on any of these people. And Elnor is like, yeah, you're here because you want something, you know? fuck off. So Picard um, wanders back in front of what looks like the Romulan social club, except the sign is now in Romulan only. And there's a big Romulans only sign hanging on a fence. 
Picard tears it off, sits down, and tries to summon a waiter, which is like, dude, the reason that the society has devolved into strife and xenophobia is because the one time that the Romulans, who were kind of a xenophobic, secretive society, decided to rely on other aliens, they got royally fucked. And now you're going to come in and you're going to stomp all over their shit and assume the moral high ground. And it's like, I, I get what the scene was trying to show, but I do not think it worked. I really don't think it worked. No, it didn't. I, I yeah. mean, just, uh, <laughs> just, I don't, I don't even know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I, I don't, uh, I feel like my opinions can't be trusted today. Cause I'm like, <laughs> Because I'm on the war path, so I feel like I can't be fair. <laughs> okay, it's, it's Joe Exotic's fault. Um, <laughs> I think it's fault. A, a Romulan approaches Picard. He is a former senator, and he's like, thanks for dumping us on this shithole of a planet and abandoning us. A lot of these Romulans apparently have subscribed to a not totally unreasonable conspiracy theory that the Federation somehow engineered engineered the supernova, engineered the rescue to basically create a Romulan diaspora to deprive them of their political power and then abandon them. Yeah, understandable. Yeah, I mean, uh, consistent with what occurred. Yeah. The senator then forces Picard to fight him in a duel for no apparent reason. With swords, because uh, because in in the 24th century, even though we have these really advanced weapons, we're still using swords. Well, maybe that copy of the Three Musketeers just really got passed around in the last 14 years. That must be exactly what happened. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Elnor shows up out of the blue to defend Picard, and he does an aerial barrel roll that would make Simone Biles pretty jealous. And he slices that senator's head right the fuck off. It's, It's very unexpected for Star Trek. You know, at first I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know? Then I started thinking about it. This particular Romulan's background character was played by a black man who gets a little bit of screen time and then he gets offed. The one who's killed. Yes. Yeah. In the first episode, Dodge's boyfriend, also played by a black man, very little to do, gets off. In the first episode, you know, like, I'm like, oh my God, it's reverse women in refrigerators. And yes, that's very cool, but... Then again, it's like, I'm a white woman and, you know, I'm having a blind spot to, okay, what are the implications of this? And then um, we we cut it out of the first episode of our podcast, but you know my feelings about the female journalist who interviews Picard, who is played by a black woman. I felt that they had her as unnecessarily smug. I was concerned that she could read as the quote-unquote stereotypical uppity black woman and it's like when you put those three background characters together i'm just like get a little uncomfortable here that's interesting i think we might have to like pay attention to future like summary executions that occur on the show because yeah you're right i mean i don't know that any of that was done consciously Uh, definitely that's the sort of thing that would be indicative of everything else that we've been talking about in this episode which is like internalized racism and sexism where you don't you do it and you don't it's not a purpose you don't even know that you're doing it you can't explain that's certainly possible and interesting that's an interesting thing to point out you did mention that about the reporter I didn't at the time I didn't 
see it that way. I don't know if I do now, but definitely there there does seem to be a little pattern forming here. Um, <laughs> black aliens, essentially, <laughs> being summarily executed. And I, and I think, you know, where it comes from is, aside from the Klingons in The Next Generation, who were... A lot of the time they cast black actors as Klingons because they were using this like very dark makeup to blend the ridges and everything like that. But most aliens were they would cast white actors, you know, almost all of the Romulans. There was one black Romulan on Star Trek The Next Generation. Almost every single humanoid alien forehead alien where they just glue a little prosthetic to the forehead. Almost almost entirely exclusively white. You can see how they're trying to make up for that. Now, 30 years later, by casting actors with various skin tones of various ethnicities in these roles to show that other alien races are just as diverse as the human race is. So I think that the intentions are really good. I just think that they're not necessarily like they think they're doing a good thing and they're bringing diversity when it's like, yeah, but you just got to watch it and think about are you are you creating a pattern? Right. That's the problem with silent cognitive biases Mm -hmm. you don't even realize you're doing it you have to be taught to be conscious of it I do think as a culture as a society we're moving towards being more aware of those things but you have to you have to be consciously aware of it and I don't know again Something I have been self-aware about throughout the the four episodes of this podcast is that maybe we're being really unfair to these writers. Maybe they did consider these things. Maybe, you know, they chose to do things for a particular reason. You know, we're assuming that they weren't thoughtful about these things. And that's how we ended up with these stock characters and a sloppy plot line. And maybe we're just not being fair. I don't know. We'll have to do maybe our, our last episode for the series will be like reading up on the comments from the people, the interviews or whatever of the people that were involved with the show and then reading other people's interpretation of the same things that we've been looking at. So anyway, Eleanor looks out into the crowd and he's like, I work for Picard now and I'll behead all y'all bitches. But Picard stops him and is like, hey, um, sorry that I left you all to devolve into poverty and strife. And I guess that's good enough for Eleanor because they transport back to the La Serena. Picard is like, listen, first rule, a fight club is you can't behead everybody in the fight club. And (laughs) (laughs) Eleanor is like, "Okay." Yeah. At the at the end of that scene, you know, like we were making fun of it, like, why are they still using swords for combat in in 24th we're in the 24th century right Mm -hmm. yeah so at the end of the scene like right after Eleanor beheads the guy there's like someone in the back of the crowd he's like hey I have a disruptor Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway we go Oh, we we learned that the Kawat Malat will only bind themselves to a lost cause, a revelation that has zero dramatic impact because this is Star Trek. It's going to have some form of a happy ending. Even before I saw the rest of the series, I was like, Picard's going to win. You know, I mean, come on. It's Star Trek. So, yeah. Although I have to say where this ends up, if he hadn't won, it would have been pretty cool. Like, I, I want to, you know, like, I hope they do a mirror universe where <laughs> that outcome occurred. Where the robot tentacle arms are now in charge. <laughs> yes. So 
sounds like an adult swim show. Robot tentacle arms. Like, I'm here for it. Yeah, me too. Back on the artifacts, Narek is having a nice nap, and he's awoken by his sister being gross, as is her way. We can't possibly go a week without creepy sibling sexually violent incest. Right. Well, you know that she's evil because she uses sex. That's how you know. She's sexy and, you know, yeah. she she likes to add just like a pinch of sexuality to her violence, as, you know, women tend to do. Right. Exactly. Um, Narek doesn't know why Soji is interested in Ramda. So he's like our audience stand in because we'll never know. Um, and he doesn't know why the Borg cube broke when it assimilated Ramda's ship. And he doesn't know why all of the Romulans on board went bananas. We will kind of find out in a later episode. It's pretty dumb. Narek tells Nerissa, his sister, that he's planted the first seed of doubt and that he needs to get information from Soji without activating her so she doesn't, you know, murder all of them and so they can find where the rest of the synths are. How they know there are more synths, I don't know. They don't really ever explain how the Romulans or how the Talshiar or how the Zjotvash or whoever they are know about the existence of the nest because the existence of Capellius isn't like a well-known thing. Nobody really knew where Bruce Maddox went. I think, I think I know the answer to this, but it would require talking about something that happens in a later episode. So do we want to wait? Yeah, we'll wait. Okay. Um, I I think it's not a great answer, but I I do think there is an answer to how the Tal Shiar is aware. I think there might be one too, but We'll we'll see. Back on the La Serena, the crew is being attacked by the warlord who had absolutely no involvement in the plot until now. And a tiny little ship comes out of nowhere to defend the La Serena. The ship is damaged, but they manage to beam the pilot on board. And you know it's going to be a woman because they have a lot of emphasis on referring to the pilot as he or him. Yeah, it's like overt. Yeah, um, it's seven of nine. She makes a wise ass crack and promptly passes out. Also, Rios has an emergency pilot hologram um, who is a Spanish-speaking burnout named Emmett. He's my favorite. Yeah, I know you like him. <laughs> um, the question... I love my toxic masculinity. <laughs> the question that I have, and, and I've always had this question with Star Trek, and I don't know if there's a technical explanation for it or if it's just you got to, you know, gloss over this plot point, is... All of the um, various races in Star Trek use a version of a a universal translator so that they can hear things that other aliens of other races speaking other languages, um, they can hear it in their own native language. And we've not really explored a lot in Star Trek about how the universal translator works, what it looks like, where it is. There is an episode of Deep Space Nine where the Universal Translator has a lot of trouble deciphering an alien's language, and it kind of, like, takes a while to kick in, but then it does kick in. And then there is an episode of Deep Space Nine where you can see that the Universal Translators that the Ferengi use are like little implants in their ears. But the Ferengi have ginormous ears, so that doesn't necessarily mean that's where the rest of, of the translators are. So that's a lot of unnecessary buildup for my question, which is... Why do we know he's speaking Spanish? Yes! How do we know he's speaking Spanish? Right. I, 
And again, it's like, it's cool that they do it. And as with a lot of science fiction, sometimes you just have to suspend your disbelief. But I would just, I would love it. It would fill my inner nerd with sheer joy if we could ever get a technical explanation one day. For how <laughs> I so I, I do have a, a, a question for you. Okay. Particularly with regard to my uh, behavior during this episode. <laughs> Do you think that we are being unfair because there are two very obvious and overt attempts during this episode to challenge traditional gender roles? We're getting the Kuat who are warrior women to the exclusion of men, a shift from how typically we would present warring cultures or a military police force in a society. And then we get the overt references to this mystery pilot being a man so that then when it's seven of nine that beams on board, everyone can be like, ha, just because she's a badass fighter doesn't mean she's a man, right? Should we be giving them credit for that? Or is that throwaway token feminism that is not valuable, doesn't add to the discussion, doesn't really challenge anybody's views because so on the surface no I think that we can give the writers credit for that and then also be like hey listen you guys have done a really good job at trying to introduce interesting female characters and subvert gender stereotypes and subvert ways in which female characters are often treated in like a very tropey way in writing but I think that also with this criticism like it's it's never my intent to say to the writers like oh you suck because you're not feminist enough but also consider this dear writers you're doing a great job but consider taking it a step further Yes, you can have this sect of badass warrior nuns, but when you only show the women breaking bread and praying and the only man who can't even be a real nun is the only one that you show to have any actual combat skills, it's problematic, you know? Right, so right. I, I, I don't necessarily think of it as being fair or unfair to the writers, and I think we absolutely should give them credit. And I and I have come around on the whole, yes, they were very stock characters in the beginning. I think they got better at the end. But I, I think you make a valid point. And I just, you know, again, it's it's like not that, you know, the writers are going to listen to our tiny little podcast. But, you know, it's never my intention to be like, you know, y'all are shitty feminists. No, you know, that's and that's not how you bring anybody into the feminist fold. I don't think, you know, it's it's more about and I know you, you disagree. But <laughs> how did you know? See it on your face and hear it in your breath. But it's it's more it's more like, you know, yes, I am certainly more than willing to give them credit while credit is due and encourage them to think about how they can go further next time. I don't think they deserve credit for it. And I don't know if that's just because I don't think it's just today where I'm being grumpy and uncharitable. I, I don't think that they deserve credit for it. It's lazy. It lacks nuance. Mm. I think that the whole not to be critical of what you're saying, like I totally respect your opinion, but you know, I, I think the whole, we have to tone feminism down to make sure that we can include as many people as possible is a very like first wave way to present feminism. Mm -hmm. And at this point I see people, not just women who refuse to identify themselves as feminists even though fem feminism literally is seeking 
the equality between genders. Right. And, like, well, but, you know, I think women should be allowed to stay at home and cook if they want, which, duh, nobody's saying <laughs> If that's your take on it, then I'm not, I, there's nothing that I'm ever going to be able to say to convince you otherwise. Because, again, the conversations that I've had with friends of mine that are brilliant, intelligent lawyers uh, who are successful women who aren't staying at home and baking cookies who say things like that, that are like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I just don't identify myself as a feminist because blah, blah, whatever. Right. But to bring it back to my original point here, it's like, well, you know, we probably have to throw in some like feminist you know, things in here. And so let's, these are the two easiest shorthand ways to be like, look, we're cognitive of feminist issues. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that sort of tokenism perpetuates the lack of thoughtfulness that people have towards this, you know. I, um, I see, I see your point. I guess the only thing that I disagree with you on is how to, approach the people that are responsible for this kind of decision making. And and for me, it's personal, you know, because I am just not a person for whom I feel like yelling at people and accusing them of being bad feminists or whatever is personally how I can communicate my message. It may work for other people. And, and that's fine, because as women, we have a lot to be angry about in this society. I just, you know, not to sound like a generation z instagram influencer but you know it's all about being authentic to your brand and if you're being authentic to your brand is when i get angry about feminist shit i'm gonna get up in your face about it and i'm gonna you know you do you like go forth and prosper and yell at asshole men who are blind to the problematic decisions that they are making for me i just have never felt that that is very effective for me personally, but that doesn't mean that I would ever stand in anybody else's way of doing that. I think I'm not conveying what I'm trying to convey accurately. I'm saying I do not think that we should get into anybody's face about, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm directly saying if you're a person who refuses to identify yourself as a feminist, and this is kind of not really related to the original question, but just for mm-hmm. the purpose of the discussion, if you're someone, especially a woman, who refuses to identify herself as a feminist, there's nothing that I can ever say to you. Oh, I agree. To. So I'm not going to yell at you or engage you or call you a bad feminist. I'm just not oh, going to. You know, I was talking more about, like, you know, yelling at the writers of this episode. <laughs> well, they're so, like their lazy takes. So I wouldn't yell at them either, but I would call. I mean, it is. It's lazy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and I would call them out on that. And yeah. the reason that. I can't, I don't want to just be like, well, they get some credit for doing this because at least they're acknowledging these stereotypically masculine things and let's turn it into whatever. The problem with that is that then people who are like, society that we live in now, feminism is no longer necessary because all the problems that existed that feminism arose to address no longer exist. Look, warrior nuns, look, female badass pilot. You know what I mean? So it's like- When you use the word credit, I I took it to mean like acknowledgement. And my thing is like, yeah, I'll I'll acknowledge that you did this, but dot, 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 you know, you need to go further. So, no, they don't deserve credit in that nobody deserves a gold star or a cookie for doing a very basic subversion of gender stereotypes. But, you know, am I willing to say, you know what? Yeah, you did it and you're headed in the right direction. However, you still have further to go. For me personally, that's that's how I would approach it. I think the way I would approach it is to say, 
addressing something like this with such a lack of nuance is harmful to the cause. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> there's your bitterest, uh, bitter feminist rant portion of the podcast. <laughs> Brought um, to you by Stephanie the Destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> and Kat, who is losing her mind slowly in this quarantine. I did not love this episode. I found it a little boring and a little ponderous. Maybe it was because after the third episode ended, it was like, okay, we're done with act one. They've gathered everybody up and now we're going to go off and do the mission. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh wait, no, we still have one more episode to go of picking up another Motley crew member and explaining why Picard is feeling so guilty about all these people that he screwed 14 years ago. But really, do we know he's feeling guilty because he's only going to them because he needs them? I just, I don't know. I don't really think that these episodes, especially Picard's relationship with Raffi and his relationship with Elnor, did anything to redeem his character. And in a way, they made me dislike him slightly because it's like, He's not even really going to them hat in hand and apologizing. It's not like the apology is even the first word out of his mouth. It's like both characters kind of have to browbeat him into into any kind of an apology. So I don't know. I just don't like it. I no longer have very strong feelings about this show because I was, it's just, <laughs> it's just not very good. <laughs> and I don't, I know I no longer have any expectation that it will be at this point. Like if I weren't doing this with you, I would have stopped watching after the last episode. Yeah. Well, no, that's not true because I remember watching episode three originally and being curious enough about the secret that will blow your mind that I kept watching for a few more episodes. But I think by the time I got to the fifth episode, I was like, you know, like this anymore, you know, so I think I probably would have abandoned it. It's just not what I want out of Star Trek. Yeah, and, you know, as we go on, I think that the show is going to have brilliant moments. And I think that those moments are are going to highlight what's missing from the show. And I also think it's going to have very, very clunky moments to come. I mean, it's been renewed for another season, right? Yes. So I expect that season two might be better, you know, because season two of Discovery was better. Yeah, no, it definitely yeah. was. Yeah, so, I, I and know. I, it's like the growing pains, you know, like a, a, a TV show that always actually two TV shows always come to mind. And I'm about to lose all credibility about my taste in television. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever watch a series called Supernatural? Uh, I, I am aware of it. I never I never watched it. It is really good, okay? okay? But season one, you have to watch about 10 episodes of it, at least six, before okay. it gets to any, like, it, the first six episodes are legitimately bad, right? Okay. But each season in that show has, like, 26 episodes, so they have a lot of time to, like, and, and it is very, although there is an overarching plot, it's kind of like TNG, where each season will have, like, a thing they're accomplishing, like, a big bad, but then every episode mm-hmm. will have a little bad, you know? Okay. 
but really for the it's like super bad acting bad storytelling like everything's terrible for six episodes but when you have if you have somebody to guide you they'll say like okay listen this show's really amazing but you, <laughs> but you have to get past the first six episodes right and, yeah. and that's when I tell people to watch Discovery that's what I say I'm like you need mm-hmm. to get past the first season because it's really not good but then it's really good same thing happened in Vampire Diaries which okay. I love <laughs> <laughs> Because listen, I am not saying I'm a perfect feminist and I am here for the love triangles. There you go. There you go. Anyway. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm not mad at Star Trek. I'm just a little disappointed. And Michael Chabon, who is the head writer of the show and also the showrunner, although I understand he's not coming back for the second season, he's actually like a really accomplished novelist. And you can see. What did he write? I have something on my. um, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Didn't he also write something else? Like, did he write Lost? No, no, he did not write Lost. That that I know. He might have done another TV show, but, you know, looking, and we can talk about this when we do, like, our wrap-up episode, looking at the season as a whole, yeah, you can sit there and go, okay, I, I see how this kind of played out as a novel, and then when you take it and you condense it into 10 episodes and then it gets further hacked up in the editing room, that could have some effect. You know, you always wonder, like, okay, well, what were the writers, what's missing that some editor somewhere decided to cut out of the show? Right, um, right. So, you know, it's like I'm not mad at Star Trek. I'm just I'm just a little disappointed. Um, but the one thing that I am mad about uh, for this episode is this episode completely and totally failed the Bechdel test. We did not get one scene where two women talk to each other about anything. Right. Much less about something other than a man. So that was very disappointing. So that's that's it. That's uh, that's this episode. Um, I thought it was just kind of more of the same kind of really hammering a theme that I think was pretty firmly established by episode three. But the next episode is, I think, a lot of fun. And when I had seen the trailers for this episode originally, like after I'd first watched episode four, I was like, oh my God, it's going to be so corny and so cheesy and so ridiculous. And Rios is dressed like a 70s pimp and Picard is dressed like a cross between a French mime and a pirate. It it really was not that bad. It, it was fun. I, I thought it was like a fun romp. And I, I think we'll have a better time with that episode because these last two episodes have been a total slog fest of depression coupled with the end of the world anxiety that we've all been experiencing as we remain trapped in our homes, the walls of mine, which seem to be closing in on me uh, a little tighter every day. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with catch and I don't, I definitely don't have a problem with cheesy. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't offended by the next episode either. I thought it was silly. No, it's it's just fun. Fun. Right, it's fun. You get a character named Bejazel. A lot of a lot of Star Trek fans have taken issue with something that happens in the next episode. We can talk about that a little bit. Um, it was not something that personally affected me that much, but I can see how it affects other people. Well, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll be back hopefully sooner rather than later. We seem to have gotten our remote connection working. Take care. Wash your fucking hands. And... <laughs> Stop fucking leaving your house unless you have to. Yeah, and if you have to, like, you have to go buy groceries or pick up a prescription, wear a face covering. Yeah. Yeah, it's not for your protection. It's for the protection of everybody around you because you could be an asymptomatic carrier and not even know it. Correct. Take a cue from our surprisingly hot Surgeon General 
And <laughs> I was like, where have you been the last three years, buddy? Hello. <laughs> hey, nice to meet you. Trump administration has finally done something right. <laughs> and uh, everybody be safe out there. Bye. Bye. Okay, wait. Knock, knock. <laughs> <laughs> Who's there, Steph? I don't <laughs> I was trying to turn this into a clever joke, but I'm not going to be able to.